Um, my name is Bert Wallace. I'm one of the elders here at Grace, and I'm going to lead us in uh, prayer today. Um, we've got a number of prayer requests uh, listed there, um, especially remember the Thatchers at this uh, very difficult time after the loss of their son. There's a number of other requests. Also think of the, the Kinsey family. Yanto is in England with his father, who's likely going to be passing away soon. Uh, please just read over the prayer request in your bulletin. Our focus today is on our elder and deacon affirmation, which will be in a couple of weeks. There's a sample uh, affirmation form in your bulletin. That is just a sample to show you uh, what it's going to be like. But over the past several weeks, we took uh, nominations from the body. That's the way our Constitution works is uh, the elders sort of initiate a process of, of opening um, uh, the nomination process, and we ask uh, you to prayerfully consider men uh, to be nominated for either elder or, or deacon. Sometimes we just do one. This time we ask for nominations for both. Um, and really the biblical um, mandates or the biblical uh, qualifications for both of those offices are really the same uh, with the exception of um, the teaching element, which is not specifically mentioned uh, in deacon uh, service in, in the Bible, although, um, you know, the first uh, martyr was a deacon who was preaching his heart out, and, and the pe- people, including Saul, didn't like that and took care of business there. So, so obviously, deacons have a, a major, major role. You know, sometimes it's easy to think of deacons as, oh, the deacons, you know, they kind of take care of the building and stuff like that, and they do that in a very good way, but they're also spiritual leaders of this body. Uh, So we have opened those nominations, and you'll you'll see... on, uh, in your bulletin, and it'll come up on the screen at some point, the, the names of the men uh, that have been re- uh, nominated and the deacons, um, excuse me, the elders are presenting to you as a slate uh, for affirmation. Uh, there's uh, Jim Clayton, Brian Lee, and Jeremy Pitten, Pittman, and Dexter Wells have been, uh, or we're recommending to you as deacons, and Neil Manning uh, as an elder. Uh, so what we're going to ask you to do over the next couple of weeks is be praying about that. That's the the primary thing. This is really not uh, a vote. Um, This is an affirmation of recommendations that are being made after much prayer and meeting uh, by the elder board. Um, The three options, as always, um, well, really, they all involve prayer. The second one doesn't mention prayer, but the first one is, I've prayed about it, and I affirm the recommendation of the elders. Um, The second one, which maybe would imply that you haven't prayed about it, I guess, uh, is I don't understand or know God's will. Although, of course, certainly we many times we pray honestly and fervently and don't receive a specific uh, 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 feeling or or understanding about whatever we're praying about. That is somehow sometimes the way it works. If that's the case with you, you've prayed about it and you just don't understand God's will, uh, but you're willing to support the recommendation of the elders, then that would be number two. Number three is I don't support the, uh, affir- or I don't affirm the decision of the elders, but of course that, impl- that is specifically saying I've prayed about it and I very much uh, feel like this shouldn't be, shouldn't go through. And then a very important final sentence, I will personally contact an elder and discuss my reasons and my reservations. So this is not kind of a, you know, Masonic Lodge blackball kind of thing. You know, th- this is look, there's a specific reason that I've prayed about it and I feel strongly, and I'll talk to you about it. So uh, be, we would ask you to do that over the next couple of weeks. Pray about it, and if you feel like you need to talk uh, to the elders in a positive or negative way, um, please do that. And then in two weeks from now, we will, we will take this, uh, this affirmation on from you uh, during the service. So, you know, th- this is a, a significant part of, of our body life here at Grace. Um, elder uh, rule is not something that's practiced in all churches. It's not something a lot of people have grown up with, um, and it's something that is difficult for some people. Um, be praying about it. Talk, talk to the elders as, as you have any questions or want to discuss any of these matters. And again, also, please uh, be praying for... Um, all these other needs in our body. Um, later today, at the end of the service, we're going to be taking up a benevolence offering, which is a way that we help to meet the needs of our body, uh, financial needs. Uh, so just, just be in prayer, please, for the elders and for uh, those in this body. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open us up. Then I'm just going to leave a, a brief time for us to pray together silently. 
uh, about these and any matters that you need prayer for. This is a time of worship and prayer. That's really what we want to think of our service as. So I'll open us, then I'm just going to give us some time to pray silently, and then I'll close us out. So just join me in prayer if you would. Father, we come to you this morning humbly, but also boldly, because we know that uh, we are covered in the blood of Christ, and uh, we can approach your throne. Without that, we could not even hope to be in your presence. And we just thank you so much for the great mercy and love that you've shown us that allows us to to come before you. Uh, We praise you. We praise your name. We acknowledge you as the creator of all things, the beginning and end of all things. You are the sovereign Lord of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing exists except from you, and all things come from you and through you and to you. We thank you for the ability to praise you. We, we know that if we didn't praise you, that nature itself would, would cry out in praise of you. And so we, we lift up our voices in praise of you. We thank you for uh, the great uh, love that you have for us and, and the gift of faith that you've given to us. And we just thank you for this body of Grace Community Church. We thank you for the uh, men and women that started this church years ago and Uh, We just pray that you continue to be with us as we seek to do your will, to uh, serve you and and praise you, to serve each other, and to spread your word throughout our community and throughout our world. Father, we do lift up those in our body that need your healing hand, your healing touch. We pray for healing. Uh, We pray for comfort. Uh, We lift up those that have lost loved ones recently, those that are in that process right now. Father, we, we pray for the, the leadership of this church as, as we uh, select new uh, members uh, to be a part of that leadership uh, team that is seeking to uh, serve this body, to, to do your will in this body, Lord. We just pray for that process. We pray that these men that have been presented Um, would be protected, their families would be protected, uh, and that you would be with all of us as we seek to to do what you've called your church to do. And these these perilous uh, times that um, we feel like we live in right now, but you've put us here. You've put us in this time and place to live uh, and to be a light. So just be with us uh, in this body and with your church at large. We pray all these things in your holy name. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time here, you can see we're not a Baptist church. We have people on front row on both sides. Uh, You might think we're a Baptist church because we will take two offerings today. Normally, we take five on a Sunday, but it's just two on the... No, actually, it's only one usually, but on the last Sunday of the month, as Bert was mentioning, Bert Wallace was mentioning, we take a benevolence offering, and you can't... You just can't imagine the ways that your generous gifts help the members of our body in and, and, and ways that you just wouldn't even believe. And the deacons do a wonderful job of administering that money. And it's quite a responsibility because we have a lot of requests, a lot of requests outside of the church. And oftentimes, occasionally, the request comes from the inside of their church, and it can always do that. Please feel free to do it, to talk with the deacon if there's a special need. But often we are aware of needs and just try to move to meet them. But that's a, that's a big job. So uh, pray for the deacons in the administration of that. Your generous gifts, we typically receive about $1,000 uh, every month, 800 to to $1,000, somewhere along in there at the end of the month. And those monies are, are used frequently. Um, we are low on that fund and we have some specific needs. So that's just my plug to give extra generously. Today, if you are here for the first time, we welcome you. Uh, we are so happy that the Thatchers are here in such a sad time. Um, we lost Shane. Shane would come to Grace, and at the uh, greeting time, he would disappear. You know, there are a lot of you that would love to disappear. You know, Shane would find his way out because some we're just natured differently, and. 
and, and you know, some of us are very private. That ain't me. As you can tell, you know that by now. If you if if you've been here for any time, some of us are very private. But and and the Thatchers are private, but they are grateful to be in the congregation and and have the support of you and your prayers. We're so grateful for that. And Yanto, his father called for him. Yanto and the family were over. How long ago, Kristen, was that? Back in March. And they thought this was the last time we'd be seeing them. But he was moved into hospice care. And he said, I'd really like to see you. And what a blessed thing for him to be able to go over to England. Nottinghamshire. Sherwood Forest Territory. So, if he comes back with a bow and arrow. We, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on him. But we're grateful that you have chosen. And I was so thankful for Bert to say, this is the way we worship. We consider this time, this entire time, from start to finish, a worship time. Uh, today, we're in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be talking what Jack and Tina evidenced so beautifully in the entire family. Amanda and Chris coming over from Japan, by the way, talking about traveling. You need to be praying for these guys back and forth and little Maley. Coming from there. But they evidence that they're aware. That as hurtful and painful. And broken as this world is. There's more to it. Hebrews is all about that. Now if you're in here for one day. And you're really trying to hang. With what we're talking about today. You might be feeling kind of like. You know you're going. (gasps) Because Hebrews goes deep. It goes deep. So I'm going to encourage you right from the beginning. To realize that one of the primary things that we're seeing is that there is more to this life than we encounter day in and day out. Kent Hughes, who the uh, home group leaders are using for extra study uh, as we delve into the questions from the the messages through the week and, and whom I typically try to stay away from so that they can have all of that kind of information that would be fresh in the home groups that wouldn't, wouldn't have come from my perspective or my particular study. Uh, but Kent Hughes opens his commentary on Hebrews with an exchange between Lucy and Aslan in, in the beautiful chronicles of Narnia that have meant so much to us. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you have read at least a portion of Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, that's, what, 50%? It's, if you haven't, it's pretty close to 50 anyway. If you haven't, let me encourage you, especially if you've got children coming on up into the fourth, fifth grade. That, that, that's a great time to read with them. And you'll be as or more blessed than the kids are with it because you'll get more. And Aslan is a lion in this fictional land of Narnia, in this allegory. And he represents Jesus. And Lucy, uh, a, a young girl who has not seen him in quite some time, all of a sudden spots Aslan and she goes running up and she just grabs hold of him and buries her face in his mane. And then there's this exchange. Welcome, child, Aslan said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I don't know if there's any book of scripture that this is a more appropriate introduction. Jesus, in our hearts and minds and lives as we jump into Hebrews, is going to grow larger and larger and larger. It's not that he is bigger. It's not that he is changing. It's just that our understanding of him is growing. We have the luxury of receiving and processing this magnificent sermon because that's what the book of Hebrews is. If you were here last week, it's a sermon. And we can do that in a land where we are able to gather openly. We can order all kinds of commentaries and studies to help us. We can talk with one another online, in coffee shops, in home groups. The original recipients didn't enjoy these kinds of freedoms. Last week's Hebrews introduction was really important because the more you understand about the setting of this book, the more you will understand the truth that is contained in this book or that is in this book. I don't like to talk about contained when I'm using the word truth, but 
the, the truth that is in this book will come alive to you if you understand some of the background. I'll cover just a little bit now, but for the most part, if you want to get that, go back to last week's sermon and, and listen online and just take it in and so you'll understand where we're going. Um, we can surmise from what is written. Well, one thing we don't know about Hebrews is who wrote it. If I had to vote, it would be for Apollos, but it'd be a very shaky vote. I know a lot of you think, Paul, I'm, I'm going with Apollos, but I got no confidence whatsoever. You know, it's like somebody, if, you, if somebody wants to give me a lottery ticket, I'll take it. I'm not going to buy one, but if you want to give me one, okay. I'll, make sure there's the 200 million it's, that's going for, you know, if you would. Uh, we can surmise, though, from what is written in the book of Hebrews, that this sermon on paper or papyrus was written to a relatively small house church. In Rome, maybe it was one of several house churches, or maybe it was just one little group of Jewish believers that was left. It used to be a much larger church, but now it's just a small church dwindling fast in the face of persecution. Uh, Neil and Myra Manning just last night put this timeline together. I gave them the information and said, "Can you do it?" I can't believe how good Neil is at this stuff, and Myra apparently had quite a bit to do with this as well. Uh, most scholars think that the message uh, of Hebrews was written to a church only a year or two before the martyrdom began in earnest. Martyrdoms began in earnest in A.D. 64. Um, some think that Hebrews was actually written after A.D. 64. It was somewhere in there, 63 to 65. And, and people were dying all around, but it just hadn't touched this particular home group. Maybe they were, or a home church. Maybe they were in a different part of town, but for whatever reason, they had not been martyred yet. No one had been lost to martyrdom, but everyone knew that it was a distinct possibility in the very near future. In fact, it was a likelihood in the near future. The sound of boots of Roman soldiers on the pavement outside was a frightening thing because it was typically followed with an arrest, a brief interrogation, and a horrible execution. Just because you said, I follow Jesus. So the church is asking, why is God silent? You know, we had been so sure, why is God silent? And the introduction, introduction in the book of Hebrews gives a resounding affirmation that God is not silent. This from William Lane. The Bible knows nothing about a hidden God. But only of men and women who hide. And of God who comes to seek them out. And to engage them in meaningful conversation. As he makes himself known to them. That's why one of our parts of our purpose statement is engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's up for, to God to save them, but we are to engage them. Well, William Lane says that that's exactly what God is doing in his book. He's engaging men and women who are trying to hide from him. By the way, we'll make this timeline available in some form. Haven't decided yet how, but we will make it available to, to you. This, William Lane continues, is the God who spoke his word most completely through his son and who addresses the members of the house church in Rome in a fresh way as they listen to Hebrews. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? Can you, is it possible for you to just in your heart, your mind, to put yourself in that house church? As the letter arrives. And your flock has been spared so far. But everybody knows it's, it's just a matter of time. Before someone dies. In fact maybe. All 15 of us. Will die. Then what? Wait a minute. What, was that boots? Outside? Oh, they passed by. I mean, you had been so sure that Jesus was a long-awaited Messiah. But now, not so sure. One thing is for certain, Christians are going to die. Not Jews necessarily. You know, we were Jews before we were Christians. We're still Jews. And Jews are not going to die. 
unless they're followers of Jesus. And oh, how I miss the traditions of my childhood and the security of the large community that looks out for each other. There's protection in being a Jew, but there's no protection being a Christian. Did I get it wrong about Jesus? Why can't we hear from God? Open your eyes and please stand as Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is read to address your concerns. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Be seated. Thanks be to God, right? Let's try that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have a lot of questions connected with this study of Hebrews. My, my, my biggest question is this. Which is going to explode first, my head or my heart? I'm not sure. Because both are in serious warning danger zone. Over the last two to three years, I've been reminded of that early time in my Christian life 43 years ago. I remember when I was first saved and and Scripture came alive to me. All of a sudden, that which was literally Hebrew and Greek to me became all of a sudden completely understandable. And I was so excited early on to realize, you know what? I'm never going to get all there is to get In this book. I hope that this study of Hebrews will be an encouragement and a challenge to you when I say that there's no way. Everything that we learn about this is only going to scratch the surface. I can't tell you how many things that I'm leaving out today. And I don't know that we'll get out before 2 o'clock. I'm I'm telling you it's going to be. I'm kidding. I know some of you will be out long before 2 o'clock. Whether I am or not. As much as I want to explain the meaning of Hebrews over the course of this series, I I, want to provide some tools that will enable you and encourage you to dig deeper yourself. The introduction of Hebrews tells us two things very quickly. First of all, the Old Testament or the author is well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, next week, when we get to verse five, we're going to realize that. His understanding of the Old Testament is an understanding of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew primarily, a little bit of Aramaic. Then the New Testament was written in the Greek. Our English Bibles translate directly from the Hebrew to the English or directly from the Greek to the English. The Septuagint went from the Hebrew to the Greek and now... It comes to us in the English. And so when you look, I said this last week, but it bears repeating. When you look and it says, this is what the scripture says. And you go back to the Old Testament, it reads a little differently. That's just because it's been translated one more time. So the Old Testament, the author knew the Old Testament in the Septuagint, which was what most everybody in in the Roman Empire understood. They they knew this, this Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, the writer knows the scriptures well. But second, we realize quickly that his grasp of the Greco-Roman rhetorical techniques were were learned and honed in the absolute finest educational institutions of the day. I mean, his argument here, although he's making a very fine point, a very specific point, is subtle and nuanced. And you find that over and over in Scripture. So when you just look at it at first pass, there's not as much as you, you... You may not think that there's as much as there is. And on our first pass in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, there's much to learn. After that, there is more. And after that, there is more. 
You get the idea. Layers and layers of truth and encouragement. So let's get, get into the, you know, the deep end right away. And um, I, I, when I ask you, do you remember what a chiastic structure in Scripture looks like? David talked about this recently. Talked about this. You've heard this a lot over the last two to three years. Authors would use different um, techniques in order to make their points. We think of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 as like three different sentences, I think it is. In the Greek, it's just one sentence and there's no punctuation, no anything. So David was telling us recently that the, the authors would find different ways to emphasize. No exclamation points, no question marks, anything like that. So they use different things to help focus your attention. So... A, 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 a chiasm was a way in which a, a, a speaker could take what seemed to be like random points and structure them in such a way to make a very emphatic point with the main thought at the very center of the chiasm. The points being made would be structured like this. A is the same as A. That little mark is called a prime. But A, B, C, D, and then C, B, A. A chiasm is like an arrow. The introduction of Hebrews is structured like this. With the deity of Christ at the very tip of the arrow. Here's what it looks like when you fill in the verses. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. The son is contrasted with the prophets. He is also contrasted at the end with the angels. You're thinking, what's this about the angels? We'll learn more about that next week. But it's all part of this structure. B, the son is the messianic heir, but he's also the messianic king. We see about his creative work and his redemptive work. But right at the middle is the son is God. He is not the father, but he is God. That's going to be important to understand that in just a few minutes as we go. So as you can see, I mean, look, there's a lot going on here in this introduction. Um, the writer is, the author is writing this sermon to a beleaguered church in Rome, and at the very center of his argument is Jesus. This is a very much an introduction to the entire book, but by putting Jesus right at the center of his argument from, from the get go, he's saying to them, This is what we're going to be talking about. Jesus is at the center. He leaves little room for doubt about what he thinks about Jesus. They're wondering. Did we get it right about Jesus? Is Jesus really enough? Don't I need to keep the Jewish law? He's saying, Jesus is God. Let's just start right there. And then everything else falls into place. The, the author reminds them about what they have believed. Not only that Jesus is Messiah, but he is God who came to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Remember, he made after he made purification for sins, we're going, we're going back to the scripture in just a minute. He sat down at the right hand of God, completely done. It's over. He is the one to whom the prophets pointed. And he is greater than anyone or anything in the entire universe. Even though the author is quite skilled in his presentation and in, in, in presenting this to the believers there. You know what he's saying right up the front? Right up front, this isn't about me. This isn't about you. You think it's about you because you just thought you heard Roman soldiers outside coming to take you away. But you know what? It's not about us. This is about Jesus. This morning, rather than going through the text phrase by phrase, I want to point out some of what the author intended for the listeners of this sermon, and then the ones who would be able to go back, which would have been most of them, to go back and read and just digest this. These are the things that he wanted them to see in the very introduction of the sermon. And even though there's a fair amount, again, it doesn't cover close to all that's here. I'm going to guess that those who first heard this sermon picked up on a whole lot of what he was saying because not only was this guy who wrote Hebrews Acquainted with the Old Testament scripture. So were all of the hearers. They knew the Old Testament as well as he did. They were quite familiar with the Old Testament teaching about the Messiah. They had in fact 
professed belief that Jesus was the Messiah, but the ways that life seemed to scream to them, you're wrong about this, had caused them to doubt. And they were rethinking their beliefs. The temptation was to reject the new story and go back to the old story. But the author, who was ultimately the Holy Spirit, addressed their concerns right at the get-go and said, look, it's all one story. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, if you can see the white, can you see the white? You see the, what's white and what's not? <clears throat> Maybe have to work with that emphasis color. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken. God spoke in the, last, in, in the past and now in these last days, which continue right up till today and until Jesus comes back. He has spoken to us through Jesus. Two covenants, yes. Hebrews tells us all about the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. But it is the same God who spoke in many ways in the past that has now spoken to us his final word through Jesus. And oh, by the way, his word has been pointing to Jesus all along. This is one story. That which had been hidden in the past is now revealed. When the church members heard, God has appointed his son to be the heir of all things. You know what they would have thought of? Exactly what the writer intended them to think of. They would have thought of Psalm 2.8. Now that was not what you and I would necessarily think of first. Because we're not as well versed in the Old Testament as we are the New Psalm 2 said, Yahweh says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You know, it's true all over the New Testament that the authors often alluded to Old Testament texts without specifically quoting them and they expected their readers to know what they were talking about. This is especially so in Hebrews. Even though we're stopping today in verse 4, next week when we get to verse 5, we'll realize it's a direct quote of Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord, or Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Jews had always interpreted this verse to be about the heirs of David, the one who would sit on the throne of Israel. So that the Lord is saying, when the king is on the throne, this day I appointed you to be king on the throne. But all of the people who wrote in the Old Testament knew that there was more to what they were saying. They just didn't know what it was that God was leading them to say. Now though, all Jews knew that this text had messianic Implications, But now the author of Hebrews was confident that his readers would, <coughs> would see that this text was pointing to Jesus all along. And that's why he brings it up. That's why he alludes to it in his introduction. Hebrews will show us how Jesus is prophet, priest, and king in God's plan. When the claim is made that after he made purifications for sins... Purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer is essentially saying Jesus is God. Because they would have recalled Isaiah 42.8 that says. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other. For Jesus to sit down at the right hand of God. Had to mean something more than he's just a special, special dude. I mean, Jesus wouldn't be seated there if he were not equal to the Father. It's simple as that. Furthermore, are you hanging? I'm going to take a break in just a second. We'll take a five-minute break, and I think half of you will be back. The assertion that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God is a clear allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. And what do you remember about Psalm 110 from last week? That's the text of Hebrews. That's the text of this message that the author is preaching on paper. It's Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, verse Psalm 110, 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now Jesus pointed back to this verse. And he essentially told the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, you know what? This was talking about me. 
I mean, who is David talking about? There's nobody higher than him except God. And he's talking about God. The God, Lord says to my Lord. Jesus was saying, this was pointing to me all along. Okay, let's take that break for just a moment. When I was in seminary in the Greek, in a Greek class, our professor, um, who was a funny man, he really was, uh, told us that the fog would clear behind us. In other words, you know, you feel like you're in the fog and you're learning all of this great stuff. And next week, you're going to be right here. You'll still be in the fog like, this just doesn't make any sense to me at all. But you know what? Next week, you'll understand what we're talking about today. Because the fog clears behind you. And you're learning more and more and more all the way along. And by the time you get to the end, you're going to know so much more. And, but so many people say, you know what? I'm always in a fog. I may as well just give up. Don't give up. Hang in there. Because God is teaching you. And, and, and the author of Hebrews comes back to Psalm 110 over and over. And we'll see how it fits together. If you're here, some of you guys from out of town, one day, this is a tough day to be here. Because it's like we're taking this one piece of a puzzle and we're putting it down and saying, you know, you, you go to church and you want the pastor to put the puzzle together and say, voila! It ain't going to be any voila moment today on the whole thing. Now, there's going to be stuff that we'll figure out. But it's all a part of the process. Why take the time? We'll get to that at the end. So if all the talk about chiastic structure and the Psalms and Old Testament prophecies feel like it's just almost too much to digest, please hang in there. The fog is going to clear behind you and you are not going to be discouraged. You ever... You ever Take a mountain, a hike in the mountains, and it's a real foggy day. And then, you, then all of a sudden the fog lifts and it's like, oh my goodness. Well, that's where we're heading, okay? Just get some rain gear and it'll be all right. So don't be discouraged. Don't walk away saying, I don't think I understood that. This is God's word. And if you were his child, you know what? He expects that you're able to understand this. And like I say, we're going to be talking with each other, home groups. We're going to figure this out together. Everything that's being said here. And we're not going to be in it for three years. So don't worry about that. God knows you're capable, more than capable of understanding his word. But in spite of what you have heard about how easy it is to understand the Bible. Like, hey, it's simple. It's a simple book. There are some simple truths, and there are things that anybody can understand. But if you want to see Jesus at the level that he's painted in this scripture, you're going to have to know, you're going to have to have a whole lot more appreciation. I don't, I want to take an art appreciation class someday. I mean, if I were to go to the Louvre, you're talking about a waste of money. I'd be saying, oh, that's nice, you know, yeah, that's nice too. Which says something about me, not the, not the art, right? So, oh, I need an art appreciation class. That's what we're in. We're in an art appreciation class understanding the picture that is being painted here. Even though it's simple, it's profound. It's going to take work to understand the depths of the truth that Jesus is God. And through him, God made a way for us to stand before the perfect, righteous, holy God of the universe. Which is hard for us to imagine, but if you can imagine... It's not going to be pretty if something has not been done for your sin. Jesus made a way so that your sin is, is gone. And it's as if you, not only as if you never sinned, but as everything you did in your life had been perfect. To understand that helps Jesus to grow larger and larger in our eyes. So who is Jesus? Our writer tells us that he was not only the agent of creation, but he's also... The redeemer and sustainer of a broken and fallen universe. Not just the world, the entire universe fell along with Adam and Eve. We're going to understand in depth why Jesus' sacrifice is superior to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Next week, we're going to review, I would have loved to have done it today, no time. How Jesus is superior to all these people and practices that are listed in Hebrews. Which... 
preceded him, but in reality came long after him. Jesus preceded angels, and yet for a time he was made lower than the angels. We'll make all of that make sense next work next week. The central point of emphasis of this introduction, of the author's introduction, though, is that is Jesus' divinity. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you saw the scripture that was on the screen during the offering, it said the exact representation of his nature. There are different ways that this verse can be translated. Have you ever wondered what these two statements mean when you come to him? You read it, you know, and you're just like, what? What? What is that? I don't, I don't get that. When you think about it, there's, a, there's room for abuse by those who deny the deity of Christ. I mean, how do you think a Jehovah's Witness would interpret this? One who doesn't believe that Jesus was co-equal and uh, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father. It would probably say something like, you do know that the word, the Greek word for radiance um, could be translated reflection, don't you? And even if you allow for the word radiance, Jesus is an expression of God's glory, not the glory of God itself. That betrays, though, an ignorance about the glory of God. You cannot be the radiance of Of his glory without being connected with the glory. And Mormons would say Jesus is the imprint. As in a copy of the father. He's not the real thing. He's just a print. He's a a replica. I mean you've got the art at the Louvre. And then you've got these prints. And then you've got you know the Elvis paintings on the side of the road. But, But Jesus is a really good copy But he's not the real thing. So why do you think the Lord would allow this potential misreading of his word to be in the eternal witness to us of Jesus? Here's the thing about interpreting scripture. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to. Truly, people justify The most debauched, immoral behavior imaginable by Scripture. They justify the most bizarre interpretations. Although what we believe about Scripture, you know, a lot of people would say, that's pretty bizarre. So you can make Scripture say whatever you want it to say. And you might say, no, not me. But you know what? It is possible that even you would someday use the Bible to make a point that is important to you, but not supported by the rest of Scripture. What if you had been taught from a child and you had believed that Jesus was created? He was not co-eternal or co-equal with the Father. You would probably have a faulty understanding of this text. You would say those things. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the imprint. Of his nature. But if you believe on the basis of all of Scripture that Jesus is God, you understand these claims to be further evidence of the deity of Christ. And when you realize what this, the writer is saying here, it'll blow your mind. What he's saying about Jesus and how it encouraged those people who were in the face of persecution as they were. This claim of Jesus' divinity is nuanced. Which leaves it open for misinterpretation. But when you accept the whole teaching of the New Testament about the oneness of the Father and the Son, you will accept this to be a claim of Jesus' divinity. You'll do that at the start, but as you look deeper at the meaning, you're going to find more meaning to what is being said than the author, than if the author had simply written, Jesus is God and he rules over everything. How do we know that scripture is God's word? How do you know it's God's word? I mean, doesn't it just make circular arguments? Like it says, I believe the word because it says it's the word. You know how we believe? Same thing we believe about Jesus being God. We believe by faith. And we believe that the Holy Spirit has something to do with our belief and our faith. We believe that he draws us. 
He opens our eyes and he causes us to believe. Well, that's what scripture teaches. It also seems to indicate that he opens our eyes and we've got a choice to make. It says both. Scripture is so much deeper than just settling on one little thing here or there. The deity of Christ was settled on. What is he trying to say? Well, let's by faith look at this text and we'll see. Look, when Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one, the Jews picked up stones to stone him because they said he was uh, uh, saying blasphemous things. He was committing blasphemy or participate. What's the word I'm looking for? Never mind. You know. Um, Usually, Jesus' claims to divinity were much more subtle, but they were no less provocative and they were no less... Angering to the people who heard these things. So a lot of what scripture says is more subtle than it sometimes is direct. It's plenty direct enough so that when we come to these things that at first glance we say, huh, we got to take a little more time. When the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, it's going to help us first of all to understand he's talking about nature, not personhood. When we think of the Trinity, how do we think of it? Three persons, how many natures? One nature. Jesus is the exact nature of God. He's not, the Son is not the Father, but He's God. They're both God. We do our best to describe that, but we all, everything that we say falls short. But we can get towards it. And then you know what we do? We take it by faith. We just believe it. This is what God said. This is what I believe. Why didn't the author just say that Jesus has the exact same nature as the Father instead of the imprint of the Father's nature or the nature of God? Well, think back to the original recipients of this letter. I mean, this very small group of believers had the Roman Empire, the weight of the entire Roman Empire Breathing down its neck. And it was against them. What are they going to do? Not only are they Jews. Which means they've been marginalized at some level. They've got some protection. But still. But they're Christians. Christian Jews. Everybody hates them. Their brothers and sisters of the Jewish race hate them. The Roman Empire. Nero has found an acceptable scapegoat for this fire that he's been blamed. For if not setting at least delighting him. And he said, well, it's all these Christians and everything is about to come down to them. Whether this letter was received before or after the persecution began, either way, the entire weight of the Roman Empire was coming against this measly little bunch. And when the author said that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, of God's nature, he was probably playing off the the seal, the Roman seal. Romans went to great pains to get this seal exactly right. The print of Caesar's face, you know. And so when Caesar would have this seal in his hand and there was hot wax poured on a letter or a document, he would seal it and it would have his face. It was the exact representation of Caesar. Was it Caesar? Uh Uh-uh. But it was the exact representation of Caesar. But you know what happened? That seal carried authority wherever it went. It was as if Caesar were there and he was saying, this is my decree. But you know what? There were borders to the Roman Empire. And people lived just on the other side of those borders over whom Caesar had no control whatsoever. And the author is saying, look, Caesar's Phone. This is just a phony thing. The real deal is Jesus. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He is the exact nature of God. He is the heir to all things. He rules over everything, not just the Roman Empire. <clears throat> the entire universe is under his control. Although the control, the visible control of Psalm 110.1 is not yet in play. It's coming though. There is nothing beyond 
Jesus' control. Everything about this life that we live as Jesus' followers is by faith. It's faith that is based on the sure and living word of God. And all of that points us to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus at the, is at the center of everything. He is at the center of our lives and he is over all. Hallelujah. Three takeaways before we take the benevolence offering. Three takeaways from this magnificent introduction to this magnificent text. Before we take our magnificent, no that's not there. Before we take our benevolent offering, benevolence offering. Number one. You will never learn everything there is to know about Jesus in this life. So just in case you're tempted to think you know it all or you know more than other people. Don't. Get over that. You're never going to learn. Like I say, we're just scratching the surface here. And I think you can at least understand that there are great depths To this text and to this word of God. Never quit learning. It's a good thing that we're never going to learn. Be excited. And by the way. Be excited when someone tells you something they've learned. Don't say. Oh yeah I knew that. Why do you know that? Because God enabled you to know that. Be excited. Brothers and sisters. That's wonderful that you know that now. I'm I'm happy for you. And you know what? I am learning things right now that I should have known 42 years ago. Should have. And I'm excited about it. Except that you will not, not know everything in the Word, but set your heart to know all that God wants you to know. And to recognize that what you learn about the Lord is going to come through His Word. He is going to use experiences in your life. Yes, of course, but always in the context of Scripture. Once again, go back to that first day when this was written. Just just think about this. Many of the people who heard these amazing words about our Lord within a year or two at the most would have been crucified or would have been taken into the Roman arena and they would have been bound and forced to watch as their children were fed to wild dogs or to, to lions before they were killed. And you're probably thinking, I'm so glad my children are in back. You know what? We have luxuries that other countries don't have. We don't. What if you lived in that kind of place? Then what are you going to tell your children? What about our brothers and sisters in the Middle East? They don't have this luxury. They're being paraded out. And before the world, decapitated with a knife. Because they followed Jesus. Maybe you should go home and Google Keith Green's I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. One verse of which goes, if I can remember, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. After he's pledged himself, he's pledged his wife to the gospel. I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's beaten, criticized, abused, I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful, praising voice and to be like him who wore or bore the nail, a crown of thorns. While God gives you breath, and we don't know how long that breath is. Oh, it can be gone like that. While God gives you breath, do not stop learning about the Savior who took us. I said Friday morning at Shane's funeral, Jesus took the heavy blow so that we only take the shadow of death. We don't pass from life to death. We pass from death to life. Shane is really living right now. Yanto's father is about to really live. Because they they believe by faith. That Jesus made this perfect sacrifice. And sat down at the right hand of God. Saying that the need for sacrifice is over. It's done. He's okay. Second. Learn to think, not only biblically, but also theologically. If you don't, you will never make it through the book of Hebrews. Learn to look, not just at a particular verse, but at the big picture. 
We live in a land of bumper sticker theology, but that's just not going to do for us. Not in Hebrews, it's not going to do. Not really anywhere in Scripture. You can't just look at a verse and say, well, according to this verse. No, it's a big picture. Let me remind you that it is doubtful that there is a better place in all of the Bible to, to, to learn how the Bible works than in Hebrews. But it's work. It's going to take work for us to get through this. Remember, the fog clears behind you. George Guthrie, whose name we'll hear again in this study, said this in light of the introduction to Hebrews. Quote, At times we drift dangerously close to the backwaters of our culture's culture's pragmatism, going so far as to judge sermons on the basis of whether we were offered anything practical or relevant. You know what? It sounds good to say, preacher, tell me two things. What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? That's the pattern in Scripture. But sometimes what you want to know takes a while to get there. If the truth taught in a Bible study, devotional time, or sermon does not have immediate implications, we do not embrace it. With our society, we glorify doers above thinkers. Thus, the rock star, the football hero, who may be immature, not all are, but some are, may be immature and shallow theologically, is elevated to a star witness to Christianity. Warm-hearted, devotional, application-oriented Christianity should be encouraged. The scriptures were written to change, mold, and direct the lives of God's people. So true. Talked about if there's a theme in Hebrews, it's Jesus is better. But really, that's only half. That's the part that we know about. The other part is, let us therefore hold fast to our confession of hope. Don't you walk away from Jesus is the application of this book. Grave danger, yet grave danger lies in focusing on the so-called practical teachings of Christianity to the neglect of the theological. Theology and practice are both vitally important aspects of following Christ. Close quote. Last. Our job as God's covenant community is to glorify and exalt Jesus. I'm sure you're Aware, I don't know if you've looked at this slide that uh, is our title slide for Hebrews. Scott Chambly has an amazing gift of capturing the theme of whatever series we're studying. Uh, this time he reflected on what Jesus, uh, it, what is said about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. But look, Scott doesn't want you to magnify him. He wants you to magnify Jesus. He wants you to look at Jesus And be captivated. G. Campbell Morgan said this. Listen to this. Grace Community Church. When the church ceases to lift Christ to the height where people can see him. It becomes useless and a fraud. When Jesus is lifted up. What happens? He's crucified. We elevate the crucified and risen Christ. One more time. When the church ceases to lift Christ to the height where people can see him. It becomes useless and a fraud. Oh, we just need, we just need elders. We need pastor. We need congregation to be like everybody else. There are so many churches that when, when Christ is not exalted, we're useless and we're a fraud. We're not the church. When Jesus is given his proper place, people are drawn to him. If you came to church this morning looking for help in your Christian life, let me say this. When Jesus grows larger in your heart and mind because you learn more about him, he is going to grow so much larger in your life. And when he does grow larger, he's going to come out. It's going to be him living through you rather than you just trying to do your best moving along. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not only for salvation, but for sanctification. We have no hope of living this life like he wants us to. When we let him live through us, well, Jesus is magnified. Let's pray.
Lord, so much theology, so much information, knowledge about Jesus in the middle of so much pain. We are a hurting people. So were the people that first heard these words. And they were words of encouragement. Lord, may Jesus become the center of our attention, the center of our affections, the center of our very lives. He is already the center of the universe. And we believe that. Oh, Jesus, be magnified in our midst. As Brad mentioned earlier, on the last Sunday, we take an offering that is specific for needs. And we want to point to, uh, to Christ in those situations as we provide for some of these physical needs. It's all in the context of pointing them ultimately to Jesus. So let me pray for this, and then we'll, uh, we'll sing together. God, we thank you that you do provide everything that we need for life and godliness in Christ. You've provided for us as individuals, and we want to care for those in our community and in our church. So thank you for the opportunity to do that through this offering. And we do pray that you give wisdom to the deacons as they administer to those who have these needs. And ultimately, we would, we would all look to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you remain standing for the benediction? morning. Uh, my name is Gary Nelson. I happen to be one of the deacons here at Grace Community Church. And uh, today's benediction um, is my prayer for all of us this week. You can find it in 2 Corinthians. As you go out into this world, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's children said, amen. Go in peace.